what all of us across the board need to think through is that we actually think there is one way to survive. And that way to survive is like leaving and this is going to get resolved in like 50 minutes, give or take a few commercial breaks, right? And then we're going to move from some shuddering survivor in a sweatshirt to like a powerful testimony in court. And that is bullshit. And I think that we like we need to think through we don't we can't have formulas for what survivor safety looks like. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Okay, hello, hello everyone. Welcome. We're so happy to have you with us this evening or afternoon, depending on where you are watching or listening from. Um, we are here this evening to celebrate the release of a new toolkit titled Intimate Partner Violence and Abolitionist Safety Planning. You'll be able to, uh, if you're using social media, you're on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, um, you'll be able to use the hashtag AB, like boy, safety plan, AB safety plan, um, to share the information that you're learning out with everybody. Um, I want to really begin by thanking all the co-sponsors of this event, um, Community Justice Exchange, Survived and Punished. Interrupting Criminalization, and Haymarket Books. Thanks also to our interpreters um, who have on short notice uh, joined us because the previous arrangement fell through. And so they've generously graced us with their time and labor this evening. Also to our wonderful captioner, thank you so much for everything. I'm really so honored to have been asked to moderate this conversation. Um, Somebody's unmuted uh, to, to be moderating this conversation, despite the fact that my arch nemesis is one of the panelists tonight. Then um, video, I don't need to go into that. You're lucky to be receiving any photos of me at all. But I want to kick off by talking a little bit about um, kind of a little bit about what got me here tonight in part. Um, I started working at an organization called Sanctuary for Families in New York City in 1994. And I spent one year there before moving to Chicago. And on my third day in Chicago in August of 1995, before my furniture had even been delivered to my new apartment, I was sitting on Howard Street on the border of Evanston, the northernmost part of Chicago, in a small conference room with about, I don't know, 15 to 20 other people 
participating in a 40-hour domestic violence training so that I could work on the domestic violence hotline for an organization that was called Friends of Battered Women and Their Children and is now called Between Friends. And I ended up spending five years at Friends uh, in terms of the crisis line, doing work over there, before taking a full-time job at that same organization in 2000. Uh, All of my time, you know, kind of all of the time that I spent at Friends, which was almost, I think it spanned about nine or 10 years. Um, By 1995, though, I was already kind of a veteran of crisis lines, having answered calls at the Women's Center um, on my college campus starting in 1989. So you might be wondering, like, why is Miriam taking us on this, this is your life type journey? And the answer really is, who knows? I don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. I do know. Um, I do have a point to make. And that is that um, working the crisis line was really a formative and foundational experience for me. But it wouldn't occur to me until much later that I had always been doing some form of politicized survival work since at least my mid-teens. I was the friend who people turned to when they needed support dealing with violence from their parents, from their partners, from the state. By the time I had embraced restorative justice in the mid-1990s and prison industrial complex abolition in the late 90s, I understood in my bones that both of these frameworks and ideologies and politics really appealed to me because they centered harm of all kinds and centered relationships. And so if you're a prison industrial complex abolitionist, it has to be, in my opinion, in large part because you care deeply about harm and violence. And you want to, as a result of that care, be active in transforming, uprooting, and ending both. Another essential component of PAC abolition is organizing. You know, so engaging in collectivity towards survival. And many organizers are really well versed in safety planning for security culture, for example. Sometimes, though, it can seem like we're less grounded in safety planning to address interpersonal violence. And so we're so lucky to be here tonight to celebrate the release of a new toolkit that was spearheaded and written by Hijin Shim with contributions from the people who you will hear from today, among others. And I think that a link to the toolkit will be dropped in the chat if you don't already have a copy. And it's, I think, an essential and important resource that I hope every single person who embraces an abolitionist politic will take time to read, to really consider, and to study with others. So without more, more pontification and further ado, Let's get into this. I remind you again that you can use hashtag AB safety plan to share your thoughts. And the way we're structuring this conversation today is we're basically going to be talking around four major themes. And I hope we're going to have some time for a little bit of time for discussion at the end. And the four illustrious panel members who are here with us tonight um, will take turns responding to various questions that I will pose. And if they go over time, then I will be 
you know, using my big gong to get them off the screen. No, I'm not going to do that, but I will find a way um, to keep us on track and keep us on time. So the first question that we're going to be discussing and trying to hear from everybody about is, how did you come to your work? And how do you understand this concept of politicized survival work within the context of social justice movements? And we're going to kick off with Hijin, who is the person who brought us all here tonight um, based on her labor, her work, and her care. Um, and Hijin will also give a little introduction of herself um, in, in answering this question. So Hijin, take it away. Thanks so much, Miriam, and thank you all of you for joining. I'm really honored and excited to be in conversation with all of you tonight. And um, my name is Hejin. I use she and her pronouns. I wrote this toolkit as a fellow at Community Justice Exchange, Community Justice Exchange and I'm a co-founder of Survived and Punished. And I came to this work, um, you know, for the reason that many of us did, because of my own experiences. I wanted to make sense of the world around me that had been so profoundly shaped by generations of domestic and sexual violence, in addition to intergenerational legacies of war and imperialism. And in my 20s, I was involved in community organizing, but I was really hungry to seek out a space to specifically support survivors. And since then, um, over the last decade, I've been on local hotlines. Eventually, I worked at a domestic violence shelter for immigrant and refugee survivors. And I became an abolitionist, uh, partially through community osmosis and the people around me. But largely, it was um, <clears throat> something that happened just through doing this work and in seeing how no matter what side of the law a survivor was on, they were you know, constantly being endangered, exploited controlled, diminished, or otherwise harmed via legal systems. And as an organizer, though, I noticed that in spite of being in queer and feminist spaces, there was still this really noticeable divide between what type of organizing work was seen as organizing and what type of work was seen as being in the realm of the private or personal problems, where it felt like the only appropriate place to seek out help was with therapists or agencies or other kinds of formalized professionalized spaces. And I understand that the nature of abuse is that it's isolating and traumatic, but it was really striking how these really blatant forms of violence were not seen as political issues, um, unless it was in the context of talking about someone who was really easy to hate, who didn't present complications for the community to condemn. And um, <clears throat> more on this is that you know, while these things, survivor support, safety planning, while these things are often not seen as political work, uh, they're seen more as therapeutic, emotional, more soft skills based um, because of feminized labor. Um, at the same time, it's something that everyone says they're not able to do, not trained to do, and that you should call a therapist or agency for. So on one hand, it's not really regarded as political work or labor. And on the other hand, it's too hard to do. It's too scary to do. You have to go to someone else for that. And so, you know, while the anti-violence field is rightfully criticized for its carceral politics and the ways that this work has become professionalized and co-opted, uh, I do feel there is some reflection that needs to happen within movements about their own willingness to kind of outsource this work of address addressing gender violence to a carceral social services model while shunning survivors and pathologizing them when they aren't the perfect radical victim that embodies all the perfect abolitionist and transformative justice politics. 
So I wrote this toolkit in hopes of intervening in these dynamics, um, in hopes of clarifying the nuances and strategies of this work so that it will be of service to others um, as a support tool, but also as an organizing one. Thanks, Hijin. Um, Rachel. Oh, thanks, Hajin, and thanks, Miriam. I am, my name is Rachel Kaidor, and I am happy to be here as Miriam's primary antagonist. And I hope to um, annoy her for two hours and 25 more years. Um, we've known each other for a long time. And so this is how we roll. Um, you know, like I too came to this work because I'm a survivor. I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence and violence was sort of the specter of violence was always present. I grew up in social circles where like not only relationship violence, but sexual violence, rape and coercion were also like almost a norm. Right. And so I've been supporting survivors my whole life, right. Since I was a child and, um, it led me to work in the field of anti-violence um, starting from a young age, like from college, much like Miriam and much like a lot of people here. Like even in high school, I was that person who was like, let me help you find a place to get an abortion. Let me help you figure out how not to get home tonight because your home is not a safe place. So moving into the field as paid work felt really natural to me. Um, and I have spent over 20, like I think over 25 years doing this for a living. So I've worked in rape crisis. I've worked in domestic violence. I've worked on queer anti-violence hotlines. I've done everything from be a legal advocate, accompanying people to court to running a like statewide domestic violence hotline. And I, I was blessed slash cursed with um, entering the work at the moment, at a, at a key moment where we saw the anti-violence field sort of um, invest really heavily in criminal legal systems and um, really see, um, like really invest in wanting to seem like legitimate people in the eyes of the criminal legal system. And get the money that comes with that legitimacy, right? I've seen the mainstream domestic violence movement also, um, domestic violence and rape crisis movements, also try to claim a monopoly on knowing how to care for survivors and invisibilizing the peer-to-peer, -peer, survivor-to-survivor work that we that that got us here in the first place. And, um, and sort of in that seeking... Um, sort of like in sort of trying to monopolize the the work by professionalizing it, leaving behind, quote unquote, non-ideal victims, right? Young people, people of color, um, sex workers, people who use drugs to cope, people who use drugs for fun, immigrants, like my people, right? And so like, I got to occupy the movement in a moment where I was seeing who the movement was leaving behind in service to um, aligning it with uh, aligning with law enforcement. Right. 
And this is how I came to abolition. And frankly, I don't know how people can do this work without becoming abolitionists, because like you see every single day what um, the criminal legal system does to survivors um, and harm doers. And abolition really helped me find a language and a grounding and a pathway beyond this sort of like mythologizing and valorizing the legitimacy of anti-violence work. But then once I'm in abolitionist movements, like Hedgen was talking about, I see like a replication of what we see in nonprofits, right? People want quick answers. People want ideal victims. People want um, victims who, who aren't going to speak out against the celebrity activist du jour and people want everyone to do the right thing and people want everything to be over really quickly. And when that doesn't happen, they call on very often femmes of color, like women, like gender nonconforming, non-binary folks who who are seen as doing the emotional labor that Hedgen talks about not being understood as actual organizing. And, you know, people, people's trauma gets sort of referred out to a small group of people who are already burnt out. And we, we need to reckon as abolitionists with the fact that like, we are a movement where we feel completely capable of shutting down an entire supermax prison, but somehow like chickens with our heads cut off when it's time to ask an abuser why they're causing such harm and like figuring out how to keep a survivor safe. And so I'm so, so grateful for this toolkit because I believe that it's, it's a step towards democratizing the skills and the analysis on all sides, right? My hope is that people in mainstream movements and people who think they're professionals in this understand that they don't have a monopoly on how to care and that they can learn um, sharper skills in caring from movement and go back to that place. And I'm hoping that abolitionists also learn that these are as important skills to learn as where to hang a banner or how to encrypt your text messages, right? And so um, I really encourage you all to hashtag the F out of this. Um, I'm trying not to curse. Hashtag this and um, to to use this toolkit. Thanks. Hi, my name is Shira, and I'm so honored to be on this panel. And when I was contacted to be a part of this toolkit, I was so honored and thrilled that it was going to be in existence because I do think that in transformative justice work and in anti-violence work, we do not spend enough time thinking through the differences between intimate partner violence and other forms of harm and abuse. Um, my The way that I came into thinking and acting and moving in the anti-violence movement um, was as a survivor myself. So like many of the people who were on this call, I was a go-to person, but I was also a mess. And I was a mess because 
the way that I grew up was super chaotic as a result of a, a generational legacy of domestic violence of many forms. And then when I started using drugs and got involved in the sex trade as a teenager, the people who I was doing that with were my age and were also struggling. And we really didn't have a social service to go to. We didn't really have a um, anyone to call because of how we were thought of and identified in advance of even asking for help. And so in some cases, just because of what we looked like, we were perceived to be breaking the law. So, so many of the people who I was surrounded by from a very young age were trans and gender nonconforming. And even if they weren't in, involved in the sex trade, they were presumed to be. And then I was probably correctly assumed to be using drugs and in the sex trade, but I could not keep it. I could not, um, I could not access um, services safely until harm reduction came into my life. And I was extremely lucky um, to be handed a clean syringe. And I will shout out the street work project that saved my life. And I will also shout out the underground network of AIDS activists who started illegal syringe exchanges on the Lower East Side of New York City, where I was running to um, before any official social services or syringe exchanges even began. And so once harm reduction, once someone handed me a clean syringe, I wish I had like a visual image of that moment because my entire life changed in that interaction. Um, and I began to think about all of the ways that I had experienced harm and all of the interventions that were possible. And some of my earliest experiences responding to intimate partner violence and um, domestic violence were violent. And I didn't actually have an analysis around violence. I just understood that violence was power and powerful. And so how to intervene seemed like violence over time, right? And so violent strategies made sense to me and hating cops made sense to me. And over time, that became an anti-violence analysis and a PIC abolition analysis through mostly feminist organizing and education that harm reduction gave me access to both through peer-to-peer programs and networks. And then later, because harm reductionists who were outreach workers and um, concerned about my overall welfare helped me figure out how to go to college. And so all of those things together made it possible for me to start reframing how I was thinking about um, politicization. In my mind, survivorship is politicized no matter who or what you are or how you're responding if you're a sex worker um, because of the way that criminalization and capitalism plays out on our bodies. I have a small dog in front of me who's uncomfortable and just moved to the camera. So I apologize. Um, And then over time, for some reason, I decided to go to social work school. (sighs) 
still sitting with my life choices on that one. I have no regrets about drugs and sex work, but I do have regrets around getting my master's in social work. And I, um, I did that in part because I thought it would give me more tools. And in reality, what I found was that it took tools away from me because the tools that were natural to me from peer networks and harm reduction were very negatively viewed within social work. And all of the alternatives that we built to survive systems were viewed as negative coping strategies, which is something that Emi Koyama writes beautifully about. The ways that survivors fight back and heal then gets labeled, then get labeled as negative coping. So an example of that would be drug use. Um, and that that the, that negative co- coping becomes pathologized and then also becomes criminalized. And so the intersection between survivorship, trauma, coping strategies and criminalization, along with mental health, social work is so um, it's, it's a straight line and it's a circular, it's not, it doesn't start with one and end with the other. It's sort of so intertwined. And for me, taking apart all of that was a really necessary part of my journey. Um, As I began to build with other young people And then as we grew together and we started to take part in a larger movement of Black, Indigenous, people of color who were involved in the sex trade and street economy through the development of Young Women's Empowerment Project and all of the work that we were doing, um, thinking all of that through. So I will, um, I'll end there and pass. Thank you you know, legal perspective and framework. And so thinking about how community accountability was beginning to come up in the deaf community and thinking about how is that applied and what does that mean? That was the time at which I began working at Deaf Hope. And I took numerous trainings around restorative justice, transformative justice. I was fortunate to be involved with the creative interventions training from Mimi Kim and really thinking about harm reduction work in ways that were very new. They were new approaches to me that felt that they actually fit. They fit with the deaf community and culture and experience. And so I was able to then set aside all of the things I learned in school And to think about doing restorative and transformative justice work with survivors on the front line, which allowed me to really understand how the system causes harm, how it it makes it worse, and how this experience of survivors going through that process is uh, even more traumatic. And that shifted my thinking. I had to think about how to make better use of community resources, how to think about new approaches. And it was a challenge because you're navigating confidentiality, you're navigating Uh, all of these factors at the same time. And that journey was one that for me, I'm so grateful that I've been on. And at the same time, now we're looking at spreading that around the community. How do you truly set aside the system as a way to, um, as the only way to validate a survivor's experience? How do we look to the community for support and healing? And what does that look like? We're still learning what that means and how to do that without causing additional harm. So those are some of the ways that I came to this work and and some of the frameworks that that impacted where I'm at to this today and really being about being in community with people and hearing people's stories and survivors experiences that 
uh, informed the work that I do. And I'm grateful to be part of this uh, panel and, and really think about how we as advocates can uh, reframe what politicized survivor work means, how we recognize an intersectional experience and that we don't have to be tied to traditional works, how, how traditional work is actually oppressive uh, in domestic and sexual violence situations, that we don't fully realize how much we often say, go to the system, this is the place Place that you go for that support and healing when in actuality it's causing further harm in so many ways. And then truly understanding what that looks like and, and acknowledging it. You know, the survivor goes into the system and automatically as a deaf person has communication access barriers. And that will then impact the entire rest of their journey. And they will have ongoing challenges and uh, barriers and harm that happens as a result of it. So how do you think about setting aside the system as the only option that we're taught and we're, we're exposed to, and instead asking questions that we don't normally think about, to take the time to uh, address what's actually going on, to listen to their stories, to think about what the survivor is envisioning for themselves, that they're passionate for uh, and experience for themselves and their family. What does that look like? And in the midst of all of those conversations, how do we also then think about harm reduction? And from a systems perspective, we know that it's not designed for people in many ways. It's not certainly designed for people with limited English proficiency. And so we have to fight to navigate the system when it is not accessible in the first place. It's not considerate of accessibility issues. And it's uh, certainly politicized in a very particular way. How do we then be creative about how to think outside of the box? So an example for me was uh, our release of information form and how do we have survivors signing this and really thinking about agency liability? Is that really the point? Instead, setting that aside and being transparent with survivors and having conversations in ways that are real, that we're having conversations around, yeah, sure, hop in my car, I can take you home. That's the human connection that we need to be having with each other. And too many uh, advocates kids are focused on internal liability or internal processes that only add to barriers. And so thinking about how we continually are funneling survivors into a system that then repeats the violence, that keeps these cycles going, uh, it's something that we have to be aware of and figure out then what kind of healing work can we actually do with survivors? Because it certainly can't happen when they get funneled into this system. And so my thinking about the work and my vision of how how we can begin working with survivors in these ways, it means being genuine, authentic connection. How do we see survivors as a whole and not only looking at this little sliver of their domestic violence experience? So that's how I came to this work. And with that, I will turn it over to Miriam. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives by Donna Murch. Drawing its title from one of America's foremost revolutionaries, this collection of thought-provoking essays by award-winning Black Panther Party scholar Donna Murch explores how social protest is challenging our current system of state violence and mass incarceration, exploring how a youth-led political movement has emerged in recent years to challenge the bipartisan consensus on punishment and looking to the future through a redistributive queer and feminist lens. 
As Kianga Yamada Taylor puts it, Donna Murch is one of the sharpest, most incisive, and elegant writers on racism, radicalism, and struggle today. This is a smart and sophisticated book that should be read and studied by everyone in search of answers to the profound crises that continue to confront this country. Find Asada Taught Me at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you so much, Anacelia. My God, I, I was, I'm taking notes, but not like notes for this session. I'm taking notes for the future of, of the work that I need to be doing. I'm sure I, I'm not alone in this. And also I'm dying to jump in, but I'm not going to because Hijin will come for me later on. So um, let me just say thank you to everybody who has been uh chatting and talking and sharing these experiences of politicized survival work and sharing how you came to the work. Let's talk a little bit. And this is something that is a big thing. I know Shira and I have talked about for so many years and Rachel as well. Um, how do we reframe an idea that is so deeply embedded in society at large, which is this idea of success and failure when it comes to supporting survivors as was already mentioned before by Hidgen, people often want quick results where the person they are helping if will leave their abuser like yesterday. And when that doesn't actually happen, people immediately feel all sorts of emotions. Some of those emotions are anger. Some of those emotions are resentment. Some of those emotions are sadness. There are all sorts of emotions. But one thing that people often feel is that all their efforts have quote unquote failed. But this paradigm of success and failure when we're talking about interpersonal harm and violence, actually, in, in particularly when we're talking about it in terms of support work, is actually a trap. And it gets us stuck in terms of where we're going to go next. And so I really would love to hear from everybody about this kind of exploding this notion of success and failure when it comes to support work and thinking more capaciously about both. So we're going to go to Hijin, who's going to take us through this very simple question that I've asked. Thanks, Miriam. I mean, I think the ironic thing about this idea of success and failure embedded into if the survivor leaves or not is that it sets everyone up to fail. And I think the reality is that most people don't leave right away if they ever do. Um, an abusive relationship often is not just over violence. I think there's a lot of care and enmeshment that is wrapped up in, in everything. It's complicated. So the idea that if someone doesn't leave, they're just not able to be helped or ready to be helped, it can facilitate a lot of paternalism, a lot of victim blaming. And someone not being ready to leave doesn't mean that they're not, quote unquote, ready for help. It means that maybe the scope of what is seen as help should be expanded to include the survivor's own voice. And what I really hope people can understand is that the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship is actually when a survivor is trying to leave. It actually significantly escalates um, risk of severe violence, including homicide. And not only that, but the idea that abuse ends once you leave is and um, we can see this in widespread breakup violence and stalking and abuse to the courts and child custody and so on. Because domestic violence is a pattern set of dynamics and it escalates over time. So when people go back, is it really that surprising? 
Um, for me, it's hard to witness how this really intense, vulnerable time often becomes an occasion for everyone to kind of judge or shame or blame a survivor, um, you know, in that like place of, am I going to stay? Am I going to go? What do I do? Is it actually possible for me? Um, and for me, it's not necessarily, how do I get someone to leave? Even if that might be very well, like what I want personally, uh, to me, that's not the point. And I think that framework can actually be very discouraging and demobilizing. And DV, domestic violence, is fundamentally so much about fear and isolation. So I think instead of becoming fixated on meeting this kind of benchmark of success, aka leaving, I want to ask myself, like, what do I do to address the fear? What can I do to alleviate the shame? And what can I actually do to lessen the isolation? So I think the conversation has to has to shift because to set it up as like a stay or leave thing, I think misses the point of domestic violence entirely and the really complicated dynamics that it engenders. Um, I'll keep it there. Excellent. Um, thank you for that. I think we have a switch coming and um, I would love to throw to Araselia. Great. This is Araselia speaking. Uh, <laughs> Just really thinking about how we reframe and rethink about success and as survivors are leaving as the only form of success. Uh, I think so much of our work is focused on this immediacy and that this time is not spent to get to know somebody and get to know what their needs are. And instead, we're looking at this short-term crisis mode. And so often, I uh, was told in the beginning of my work, don't be afraid of taking that time. Don't be afraid of getting to know a survivor. And so I'll do that. And that might mean I'm spending three or six hours in an initial contact just to get to know a survivor and ask questions and hear a story. And they might be having a reluctance to share, and that's completely understandable. So we figure out other ways to connect. And that might mean going out to lunch, my treat, you know, and getting to know somebody in other ways that then allow them to be more open and sharing of their experience. I think it allows you then to hear what their vision of a life free of violence would look like. And then we can figure out how to support that vision. And that vision might include keeping their family together. What harm reduction techniques can we use then? And how do we ask the right questions and offer solutions that then are around keeping the family together? We're so taught and trained to hone in on this one part of a survivor's experience, and that's it to that to the exclusion. We, we ignore the person causing harm in all of this. How do we truly then understand their background, their upbringing, their resources that they have or don't have? What levels of access do they have? Can some of those places where there are barriers uh, be addressed? We have to think about ways that we distance ourselves from the work and we think that we failed or that we are not meeting some external expectation about what the survivor needs. And so often we're coming from this place of privilege in that interaction. And we're thinking, okay, well, as long as the survivor feels safe and that, that this is their own experience... Uh, you know, we're not looking at the whole picture. How do we change those expectations that in reality cause more harm to the survivor? 
we are unable to stay present to what the survivor needs when we're thinking about those expectations of success. When you uh, really are looking at the family, at looking at a survivor in context, I was working with a Black survivor who was previously incarcerated, who was homeless at the time, who was uh, using substances and was living in an SRO, a single room occupancy uh, situation. Uh, they were having domestic violence. The survivor was experiencing domestic violence. There was a lot of fighting going on in, in, their, in their room. And that pain and harm and violence, the fighting was often around food. They would have to be going to a food pantry and food banks in order to get food to live on. And as that food was coming into their home, they had no place to put it in this single room. Uh, it was attracting bugs. It was attracting uh, rodents into the room. And so there was a lot of harm that would happen around food. Domestic violence was in part a result of that, or it was at least triggered by that on occasion. And so as we were having these conversations, I was able to talk to the survivor. What do you need? What do we need to do to change those circumstances and have actual harm reduction. And one thing that became present is that they needed a refrigerator to preserve food, that that in reality would reduce the experience of harm, that that was a place where a lot of violence was happening. So we, I went back to the team and we talked about, can we get a refrigerator? And we, we made that happen. We brought that to the survivor. And uh, you know, in this circumstance, the survivor was open about working with me and was proud to introduce me to her partner who was causing harm. And so there wasn't really a, a safety confidentiality issue in this particular scenario. Uh, they knew that she was working with Duff Hope. And so I was interacting with the person who was causing harm. And that's not typically something we do. We would often have distance from the abuser. And that wasn't the case. We thought about how to interact in ways that were about harm reduction. And so we had a conversation, the person causing harm came down and made sure the refrigerator could go up to the room. And with all of these things being put in place, harm was reduced. The violence was reduced. They were soon able to get into more stable housing. The domestic violence experience in the home went down to almost zero. And it was a huge relief because ultimately then that meant fewer police interactions. That was also causing harm. The person who, who was doing the violence in the relationship was limited English proficient, had some cognitive processing challenges, had other language access issues. And so they were having a lot of harm as a result of police intervention. And by doing all of these things, we saw many ways that harm was reduced. And this is really, again, about thinking outside of the box, thinking about how we can be creative to actually reduce harm in a variety of violent situations. So uh, just sharing another brief example of actual application of this idea, we received as an organization money to support around COVID. And we specifically use that money to do direct financial aid to survivors. And so often it was very specific. You have to have it go to survivors. It can't go to the person causing harm. There's a lot of policies and procedures around that. And we knew that that wasn't the way to be effective with it. We knew that we wanted to give survivors directly the money and not have control over where it would go and how they would use it. And that there was all these processes and paperwork involved that we could directly give the funds and that the survivor would know that they were cared for 
And that included their partner who was causing harm. Uh, it was a way that we could uplift this relationship and focus on what the survivor truly wants and needs to be safe. So in all of this, we have to recognize that the survivor is the expert in their own experience, that we have to honor and support their choices as the expert. Wow. Like, thank you so much, Arcelia, because I feel like there's not a lot to say after that, but I'm definitely going to say a lot because I have so many feelings about this. Right. And I, and low key, I blame Olivia Benson <laughs> because this um, failure success dichotomy is also about like our perceived, like us perceiving that the survivor actually failed. And I think that what all of us across the board need to think through is that we actually think there is one way to survive. And that way to survive is like leaving. And this is going to get resolved in like 50 minutes, give or take a few commercial breaks, right? And then like, we're going to move from some shuddering survivor in a sweatshirt to like a powerful testimony in court. And that is bullshit. And I think that we like, we need to think through, um, like we don't, we can't have formulas for what survivor safety looks like. I can probably count on my hands and feet over the 20 something years I've done this work where a survivor is like, I want to leave. But what I cannot count is the amount of times a survivor was like, I just want this person to stop hurting me. You know, and then like, I think like Hedgen, you said this um, to me a few months ago about like when you're talking to a survivor, you, you know, like, like helping them part of the safety plan is helping them remember, like come to terms with the fact that the person that they met and even the person that they were is probably not going to come back. Right. And I think that those of us who are in a helpful, a helping position thinks that we're going to like somehow press the magic button and like our safety plan is going to be great. And we're going to do the GoFundMe and we're going to get somebody a hotel room. And that's the end of the television show. And then in the next episode, everything has gone back to this original mythical utopia that never actually existed. And I think that there is also this myth around people like that people who are trying to help hold that somehow we would make different choices, right? Like if that was me and somebody offered me a shelter, I would leave. Or if that was me and somebody's like, let me put you in an Uber to get you away from your abuser, I would leave. And that is so patently false. You know, like how many of us have stayed in terrible relationships, terrible activist collectives, terrible apartments for a really, really long time for like for no reason that that anyone outside of the situation could understand. And so we need to rethink this idea about success and failure because the success is actually just making it to another day. You know what I mean? And I think that the success is also helping survivors not lose their sense of self that the harm doer is trying to take away from them, right? And also believing that the survivor's like choices and their perception of what a life that is more or less safe looks like is the right answer. And then it also 
like requires for us to think about like what are our boundaries and biases around what we're demanding of the survivor. And I think this is something that I see very often um, in anti-violence work, right? Like we want people to be a-okay after 12 sessions, right? And then um, we, and I see this also in abolitionist community where like, we don't understand why someone is still exhibiting, like is is still sort of dysregulated because like we got them to break up with their partner and we had a healing circle and whatever, we lit some sage and it's all good now. Why can't we just go back to talking about the important thing? And we we need to stop making these demands of survivors. And we also need to like interrogate our own biases that, um, you know, probably come from our own fears that if we were in that situation, we would probably not make the quote unquote ideal choice either. Um, and so like binaries suck people like success and failure, male and female, like we know, like let it go about the binaries and start thinking about like, what does this person actually want and how can we move them closer? It's not about removing, like Shira taught me this. It's not about removing from a situation. It's about what can you add to the situation to make, to reduce the harm. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I'm going to pass it there. I'm going to leave it. I'm so, um, I was so engrossed in what everyone was sharing that I kind of lost track of where I was at. And I, and then I went on a journey in my head. So I'm just going to talk a little about that as it relates to this question. I was reflecting on the experiences that I had as a child and the way that we don't focus on what we, we don't have safety structures for children to really articulate what would feel safer to them in the context of DV. And then I started reflecting on two of the relationships I had when I started partnering with people as a queer person. And I had many beautiful, I'm lucky to have many beautiful relationships, but I had two that were, that were one was can only be called abusive. And the other was complicated. There was, it was complicated, but, but uh, harm happened to me in it. And I started thinking about what were the things that the people in my life did. And I also started thinking about the ways that people in my life have depended on me, even when I was a survivor in that moment. So even when I was surviving violence, either in my partnership or in my family, my family of origin, I started assisting and being of service to the people around me who were also experiencing violence simultaneously. And I think a success is what we already do in some ways. Um, and shifting the success failure binary also means looking at what we do now that works. And I think one of the things that survivors have always done and that drug users have always done, and that people in the sex trade have always done, is turn to each other. And I think, I love how much we talk about mutual aid. And when I was coming up in the 80s and 90s, that was framed as peer-to-peer. -peer. And it was sometimes in social service, but mostly outside of social service. 
And I think that um, politicized nonprofits that were able to hold complex peer networks were a huge part of how I began to reframe notions of safety. Um, the other day, I heard Mariam talking about thing about um, how safety has become another product, like something that we can it, either a goal that we can achieve or that something we we can own. And I think what Rachel was just saying about how there's no set point that we return to, there's no imaginary beginning um, where everything was safe and shifting our ideas of safety are at the core of shifting our ideas of success failure. And also looking at what we're already doing because we're here, right? Like we're, we're here and some of us aren't. I also want to acknowledge that some of us are not here and how heartbreaking that is to me every day when I sit with the loss, it's profound. Um, and so I want to acknowledge the loss of those who did not get here. And I want to keep turning towards each other and looking at the ways in which we keep, we keep, we keep making it and we keep making room for each other and ourselves through our peer networks, through how we communicate with each other, through the gentleness, patience, and pacing that we use when we are in it in this deep way, because in my mind, peer-to-peer networks are one of the most important components of our survival strategy. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shira. Thank you to everybody who jumped in here. Of course, my brain is uh, just going at 100 miles per hour right now. Um, I want to talk about something here, and I want to pull us into a messier conversation if we haven't already started to be messy from the beginning here, because this is what this work is often so complicated in real life and so, so messy and not about success and failure, but about, you know, so much of the work that we're trying to do is how to do the best we can with what we have, which usually what we have is not a lot, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's hard. It's hard. And I think I want to acknowledge that up front because I think that people um, feel that way. It's hard, but it's necessary work that we must do if we're going to actually have the communities that we want, in my opinion. That's just what I think about this stuff. And I want to talk here a little bit about this is calling in our fellow abolitionists, um, PIC abolitionists with some real talk um, lovingly delivered around our oftentimes we have this desire for transformative justice or non-carceral responses. And it turns out though, (laughs) that when you're working with survivors, there's just never going to be a one right solution for every situation as that has been mentioned before. Some survivors may choose methods of self-defense or self-preservation that you personally would not choose. Um, something that I've said for years to people all the time, which sometimes people push back on, but I think it's true. I think that, you know, I always tell people, I don't tell people not to call the police. Like, 
you get to choose what it is that you want to do for yourself that you think is going to quote unquote keep you safe. If if calling the cops and your surviving violence is the thing that you want to do, feel you know, you should be able to do what you need to do to be actually safe in the world as you see it. Um, and that that's sometimes unpopular for certain people whose politics is absolutely never engage the cops. Personally, that's my politic, but I'm not going to make other people live only by my politics, right? Like, I think this is really important. So I'm wondering if you're willing to share a little bit, Rachel and Shira, both of you have been engaged for a long time in transformative justice work and abolitionist work. What is your experience in navigating these types of situations? And what are some common challenges and how have you kind of addressed this? You know, I want to say something lastly here about another point that I want to add to the mix here, which is that um, not all survivors are likable. Can we say that out loud? Are we allowed to say that? Right. I'm a survivor. I'm not usually likable. So I feel like the facts are that sometimes we just don't like the people we happen to be working with. And yet we still have to be present for that, for them. We still want safety for them. We still want all the good things for them. And I think it's easier when people think about the person who's you know, seen as the abuser being monstrous. And then you're like, oh, that person is definitely not likable. But sometimes the person who's surviving harm is also not likable. That's also part of the messiness that I think sometimes abolitionists then want to skip over the support part and get the hell out of Dodge. But, you know, we got to like talk about these things real in a real term, in a real sense. I threw that in there. That's not something I had brought up to anybody to talk about before, but it's something I think about all the time in my work because I've certainly worked with people I did not like along the lines of trying to, you know, uh, offer more safety. So I think I'm going to have um, Rachel go first here and respond if that's okay. And then we'll go from there to Shira and then anybody else. So, yeah, I can, I can directly attest that sometimes Miriam is not likable. <laughs> it's, a, you know, you're annoying. That's what I want to say. Yes. <laughs> yes. But you love me. Um, like I, I hear, I feel this really deeply and I'm, I'm here to call in my abolitionist people because I've seen this play out so many times where a survivor is maligned. Like once a survivor decides, because like once a survivor decides that they are going to access the criminal legal system, right, out of a desire to not themselves get killed by somebody then all of the sudden, right, like they are the bad person. And the real quote unquote victim is the harm doer because now the harm doer is in the clutches of, of the, of the criminal legal system. And like, we've done this thing in abolitionist community where we can't actually hold in our hand that sometimes like people do cause harm and they do awful, awful things. And it doesn't mean that it's okay for awful, awful things to happen to them. Right. But we, but I, I think that we don't, we're not solid. Like a lot of us aren't solid in that argument. And then a lot of us aren't solid in the reality that like a lot of survivors like access the criminal legal system because they need someone to pull this person off their ass. 
right? And unless we as abolitionists really commit, and we're going to talk about this in a, in a minute, but until we commit to like answering the phone when some we know somebody's getting their ass beat, or like when we hear our neighbors screaming, putting on the robe and going outside, then we actually are, we're setting people up, right? To, to be harmed. And I've seen this, like, I've seen this sort of zero sum game happen a lot, especially around like pretrial detention, right? And where we, where we like really, we're, we're so invested or people are so invested in this notion of a presumption of innocence that like all of a sudden you think we live in a world that cares about survivors and is like willy nilly rounding up like abusers and rapists. Like, like every advocate can tell you it's so actually hard to get law enforcement to even give a damn about survivors. And so, and so like, I'm not saying that it's, it's not, I'm not saying that the criminal legal system is not harmful to the people who are rounded up for domestic or sexual violence. What I am saying though, is that like, we can't start this hierarchy of who is, who is the real victim, right? And like, I say this all the time where like anti-violence fields demand a perfect victim, right? Like they want like someone who's gonna cooperate with the cops, who's never used drugs before, who like goes to church walking uphill to like five miles each way and like is willing to do every single thing to, um, to like fit into this heteronormative stereotype of what a good victim is, right? And I believe abolitionists also want a perfect victim of the system, right? Like they want someone who didn't do the thing that they were accused of doing. They want someone who wasn't, um, who's not harmful, who's like so grateful for your support and is like gonna be splayed on the homepage of the Innocence Project. And no, like very, very few people occupy either of those poles, right? So like what we need to do is not malign survivors for figuring out how to keep themselves safe in that moment. And what we have to also do is like really work on figuring out whether we are actually spaces that are invested in keeping survivors safe. And I feel a little some type of way about also being an evangelist of like community accountability, transformative and restorative justice, because I feel like in recent years, we've like unleashed this, this beast, right? Where the people think that they can, they can replace actual community building and uh, and like actually engaging harm doers and actually like intervening on violence with like a healing circle and it makes me so bananas right and like like Shira said this earlier and I I don't think people can quite grasp this so this is for the seats in the back right like transformative justice Restorative justice, community accountability is not always the answer for every single problem, right? And until we start dealing with problems as like, like until we stop trying to find these shortcuts, we're going to be screwed. And until we stop trying to create a hierarchy of whose experience of violence is more awful because it's meted out by the state versus their partner, 
then we are also not going to create this. We're not going to create an abolitionist world because we will not have abolished violence. Like we will not have abolished like patriarchal violence. We will not have abolished rape. We will not have abolished the devaluation of somebody's over others. Right. So so we need to get our shit together as abolitionists because and we can't we can't just dismiss out of hand that people need people to, to intervene, right? And people need safety and they need people who are going to respond to their needs and invest in their humanity as well, right? And so I'm gonna pass it to Shira who also um, has love and rage on this, on this topic. I do. I have so much love and rage on so many topics. I think um, I want to touch on a couple things because I think, you know, as always, Rachel knocks it out of the park and it's always sucks to follow her on a panel and you can see why. Um, But I want to say there's a couple pieces that I feel like we're missing. Um, One is the difference between the different strategies of transformative justice and community accountability and what the meaning of these words are. And so abolition has a lot of practices and they, they have a lot, and we have a lot of strategies that we're using right now and not, and the strategies may be usable in multiple situations or they may not be. So For example, um, I would not ever do a community accountability process in an intimate partner violence situation where active harm was happening. That isn't called for. That's not a good idea. And the blaming then of survivors who know they do not want a process for then accessing other kinds of help is deeply disturbing since right now there's only so many forms of help that we have access to. Transformative justice is a broader category of interventions and many of us have worked really hard to come up with meaningful interventions and solutions so that people can call on peer networks, they can call on friends and neighbors. And again, one of the complicated dynamics of intimate partner violence and domestic violence is, as we've discussed, the isolation. So for example, something like pod mapping, which is a beautiful beautiful intervention gifted to us through the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective and made really accessible through the work of Mia Mingus isn't always going to work for someone who's in an intimate partner violence relationship because pod mapping, and we can drop the BATJC article in the chat so you can learn more about it on your own, pod mapping depends on still having access to relationships. So we have we have a giant misunderstanding among abolitionist activists about what the how the function of dv and intimate partner violence 
operates in in survivors' lives. And that is part of what's keeping people from coming up with the next strategy that's useful is they want to keep recycling circles and recycling pod mapping and recycling community accountability processes. And those pieces aren't going to really do it most of the time. So what we need for this to shift is for abolitionists to start getting educated by survivors, by longtime anti-violence organizers and workers about what the exact meaning and texture and reality of domestic violence and intimate partner violence looks like so that we can start to really have true strategies that can be effective. There was an article, or not an article, a book that Erica Miners wrote called For the Children that has a really beautiful story about how um, how there was a couple that was having probably a DV, um, a DV, like a long-term DV relationship, but definitely was sparking a lot in public on the block. And the way that they approached that was through building relationships, through block parties, through creating a network around the family and around this couple so that the isolation function of DV was interrupted, but in a, in a way that also built the strength and safety of the block. And it's one of my favorite interventions that I've heard in a long time. One of the creative strategies that originally made me link syringe exchange with um, with anti-violence work was when I was, I guess, I don't know, 18, 19, I stayed in a shelter. And after I stayed in in, in a shelter, I got a job in a DV shelter. I got a job working there as a, as like a volunteer peer. And, um, one of the amazing people who, um, was, um, kind of like a mentor, but definitely like a radical, amazing, probably now as a PIC abolitionist, um, who, who was there and who was so frustrated constantly with the shelter. And I was shocked because I was frustrated, but I wasn't wholly in my own steam yet to name what wasn't working. And I remember overhearing her talking to a friend of mine who was struggling with middle of the day or just showing up. And so she talked to her about putting bells all over the doors, like these little uh, chime bells that she could just explain away as um as like fairy bells or as some sort of um aesthetic desire right to hear bells all the time but the bells meant that she had a warning system and in my mind that was a beautiful intervention that kept her in relationship with this person who i made be my unofficial mentor which i love to do and kept her connected. And so 
the person who was my unofficial mentor in that setting was also a survivor. And I'm so I'm going to take it back <laughs> to the critical piece about survivors helping survivors and the critical nature of peer networks and the ways in which we trust and know our deepest um, our deepest allies are ourselves and the way that we can begin to recalibrate abolitionists around what is safety, what are actual resources of truth, and what are um, what are ways that we can add to a situation to shift the harm that's happening in the moment rather than always thinking about ending or removing something while at the same time not tolerating violence and abuse in our lives. And yet the function of intimate partner violence and DV is so total that it can take a really long time to shift all of the necessary components that may be there in order for that violence to also shift in whatever way that it can. Um, okay, I'm going to stop. Thank you so much, Shira. Um, I want to take us to our last question before we open up for questions from the audience and anybody who wants to jump in or, you know, wrap up. I, I do want to say something as well here, because I, I think I don't want this lost on anybody, um, that a big part of safety planning for survivors involves complete structural and systemic uh, uh, dismantling of the current system and then building of a new one because survivors need free housing, free health care, free child care, cash and money. All right. Like we're not this. Please take this to to be clear that nobody on this panel believes that um, we're going to do things only individually. Like we are all committed organizers and, you know, longtime people doing this work. We know that the actual structures have to shift so people can access what they need. But th what this toolkit does is it's not an either or it's a both and. Right. Like we're going to fight. We're going to keep fighting the big fights on the structural systemic change. But we got to do the stuff on the ground with our people, too. So I hope that. No, that doesn't get lost here in the conversation we're having because that's also part of this work that this toolkit doesn't, uh, you know, exist like in a separate little box here. That's like a new program that you're going to do for your project. It's like learn the skills, intervene, take responsibility, make sure you stop people from doing horrible things in your communities, make sure you're there for the people who are harmed and fucking dismantle this whole hot mess so that we can build the world that we need. Like <laughs> all of those things together. Um, all right, let me go to the question, uh, the, our last question. And Araceli is going to uh, kick us off with this last question. Um, tell us about an experience of safety planning that really informs how you approach your work today. And, you know, I think what I want to also point out is that this toolkit has such practical immediately applicable information that you can use tomorrow. Like, you know, and this is a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real 
a testament to Hijin and Hijin's experience and all the people who contributed to it by sharing your resources and the things you've done. Uh, this is such a helpful tool. So let's talk a little bit about that. Araceli, can you kick us off, please? I want to respond by sharing a story. And this is, is one that that was real. It happened for me. Um, the deaf community is so, so very small and interconnected. And we have what's called, um, I guess I, you would call it a tournament. Uh, the deaf community hosts on a national level tournaments where community members can join in on this uh, event, this sporting event. And uh, this national tournament was held in our community uh, at this point, and a well-known person in the community who had been causing harm on an ongoing basis was uh, going to be on this team, uh, this this sporting event. And a lot of individuals knew his reputation. They had experienced harm by this person. Several survivors and community members came to Deaf Hope and said, we feel really uncomfortable going to this event. This is a huge event for our community. We want to be there. But at the same time, we don't feel safe. So we wanted to brainstorm, how can we feel safe? How can we be comfortable? One of the approaches that came out of that was that I would meet with the president of the organization who was coordinating the tournament. And in that meeting, understanding that this uh, president who was uh, organizing it was a former teacher of mine in high school. And so thinking about uh, having that conversation, I was kind of appointed to do that and to sit down and, and see what solutions we could come up with. And so we had that meeting and I was able to express the concerns from survivors and community members. And this president of the organization said, look, we cannot ask this uh, person causing harm to leave. Uh, but at the same time, we really want to explore what sort of community-based solutions we could have to make sure the survivors feel safe at this tournament. So through that conversation, we came up with some different ideas. And one of them was that the president himself would write a letter, uh, reach out to the person causing harm and said, hey, we've got some concerns. We know that this is happening. We want to address it. And throughout this tournament for the entire weekend, we are going to be having staff and volunteers, including myself as the president, who are identified specifically and tasked with the job of keeping an eye on you and making sure that harm is not happening at our event. And during this tournament, there was also going to be evening activities, social hour at the bar and things like that. And the president included that time in the safety plan and when they would be making sure that no harm was happening. And so throughout the tournament, if anybody feels uncomfortable or unsafe, if we get any indicator that that uh, something needs to happen, we will do it. We're going to ask the staff volunteers to be available to escort either yourself or people who don't feel safe to their cars or uh, out of the building. And this was one example of something we put in place to make sure that survivors felt safe at this community event. This experience so informed how I think about the work because you have to remember that the people who cause harm can't be just booted out of our community and sent to this remote island where they all hang out there and, and everybody else is safe. It's It's got to be acknowledged that the people who cause harm are a part of our community. And what are the ways that we can then be creative? How do we think about ways that we're not exacerbating the harm? How are we not perpetuating a punitive approach? How are we putting all of those systemic, uh, harmful approaches aside? 
it makes me really understand that the way we help each other is opening ourselves up to different possibilities. What does it mean to think outside of the box? What does it mean to leverage the community support that's available? And through that experience, I was really surprised to have this president of the entity be open to providing help and support and to being creative. And I think in many ways, that's the benefit of a small community who all know each other and value each other in specific ways. I think part of that is key to these approaches. Safety planning has to uh, be moved away from this mindset that the survivor has to leave. This is not always the case. And we have to do education and preventative, preventative education and work around what does a safety plan truly mean and what are the options available to you? Uh, that will lead us then, it led Deaf Hope to a journey of thinking about how we can be at the core of that to have something ongoing and um, you know recurring, right? When these situations happen, what are some touch points that we can go back? to? And how do we push ourselves to then think about coming together and having hard conversations, thinking about how the system is not typically going to be doing things that feel right. And so our advocacy work has to look different for each and every survivor that we work with. And so we have to push our way through this dismantling of our own thinking about the system of that, of that, of the place that it holds inside of us. And how do we keep the survivor at the center of all the work that we do? Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Anatolia. Oh, I have so many thoughts and I'm trying to think of one story that sort of encapsulates one of the things that I think we really need to pay attention to like several things, like one, that it can't just be one per, like you cannot be the only person in a team, right? Like we, like Shira taught me this too, right? We heal in community. And so like, if you're going to take it upon yourself to be like Captain save and be like this person's like rescuer, you are setting yourself up, right? And I'm reminded of like, as as Araceli especially is talking, I am reminded of um, when I worked at the rape crisis center. I had um, I had a client who um, who was sexually assaulted by her partner, and but she also worked the stroll right by my liquor store when I was um, when I lived in a different neighborhood, and so she would see me all the time. And you know, like professionalization tells you you're not supposed to. Um, talk to your clients outside. Cause like, Oh my God, they might feel shame. And, but like, she would just like roll up on me in the, um, in the liquor store with semi-frequency. And so like we, we started having a relationship because we hung, <laughs> we hung out in a lot of the same spots. And so what, what ended up happening is that like, she would just like call me randomly about either this person abusing her or some hilarious shit she just saw like while she was on the stroll. And so the, and she, I may have been a subpar professionalized advocate because I was never like, Oh, you went back to dude. Um, and because I'd never asked her that question, she, she would just tell me things and we would like, like I would understand that she wasn't asking for an exit strategy. And so this woman followed me around in my life 
for literal years and through multiple um, boyfriends. And she would like, she would sometimes call me when I switched jobs and be like, oh, this person got locked up either for beating her or beating another girlfriend. And she'd be like, can you help me get bail money? Right. And this was before we had a bond fund here. And this is a fairly common thing. I think like a lot of survivors bonding out the people who cause them harm. And because I was, you know, like I was like, I'm supposed to tell you that you're supposed to let this person rot. Also, how can we get the the money to bond this person out? Because that's actually what you want right now. You have your reasons for that. And I trust you. I'm going to offer like, I'm going to tell you what I can offer you. And I'm going to be also really transparent about what I can't offer you. And it's like, we committed to being in relationship with each other. We, I wouldn't say we were friends, right? Like, I was like, if you come into my apartment, you're definitely stealing my records and selling them. So no, you're not coming upstairs, but we are totally going to hang out. And like, we we're going to be in relationship for years and I'm not going to judge your asks. I'm actually going to be honest about what I can do as your, as somebody in your world that, you know, you can talk real talk with. And like our relationship sort of lasted for a really, really long time. And most of what we talked about wasn't the violence that this person was experiencing at the hands of the person causing them harm. Like we talked about like Lost and the disappointing, the disappointing season finale of Lost. You know, like we talked about TV, we talked about them as a whole person because that also really helped me figure out like what did safety look like for this person, right? And so had had I just kept the relationship as like, I'm gonna accompany you to court and I'm not going to acknowledge you at the liquor store and I'm not gonna give you my personal phone number and like, I'm, I'm going to like clutch my pearls every time you tell me something really hard, but just like something you need to get out, you know, like she would never have felt safe enough asking me for more things, right? And letting me be a support in the way that I can be a support to her. And I think that we we don't think about, like we don't think about multiple forms of isolation. And we also don't think about um, survivors being reduced to the sum of their trauma, right? We don't think about like how we relate to somebody as a whole person, not just a set of bad things that we're trying to make okay for them. And so like, and we also need to realize that when we commit to being in relationship with someone who's either experiencing or causing harm, right? These, these harms are pattern-based and cyclical. And we're, we're about to get on a ride that we're going to see this cycle play out multiple times. So we need to think about also how we're going to ground ourselves and not project our own, like, like how, how we're going to react to witnessing that cycle and not project our needs onto the survivor and make demands of them to survive the right way. Um, and so I'm now thinking about her because I think I still have um, the keys to a storage locker that she, she let me hold once. Right. So I'm like, Oh, she doesn't know I moved, but um. But yeah, so that's one story. Uh, yeah, I'm going to kick it to, I believe, Hedgen. Thanks, Rachel. 
Um, I think all these stories help me to think about my experiences of safety planning in various cities, whether it's organizing or with friends or with family. And the experience that I'm thinking of is um, like Rachel, one actually lasted over the course of years. And this is also someone who has not left her, um, left the abusive situation that she's in. And it was a situation of abuse of abuse between my own family members. And it was very difficult for me to witness, but there was literally no one else to do it. And the abusive party was really physically abusive um, in a lot of ways without actually ever hitting her. And at the time when the violence was really escalated or kind of at its peak, um, he regularly threatened to kill her and he also threatened to kill me as well. And um, eventually they moved to a different state together where things worsened. And he said that if she called the police, he would kill her and then himself. So obviously I was super concerned for her safety. And I remember feeling really helpless, really frustrated, um, especially about the ways that she personally framed what was going on. Um, I felt that she was minimizing the severity of what was happening, even as she was clearly, you know, getting sick from the stress and deteriorating. And um, that was because she felt like she deserved it. So she never tried to leave. She never tried to fight back. Um, and when I say she never tried to leave, she never even tried to leave like temporarily, just like walking out of the fight or the situation. And um, a big part of safety planning as a result was working through this idea that she deserved it. And as we continued to talk, she came to feel more that, you know, no, actually, she didn't deserve it. And even if she had done things that she regretted in the past, that it wasn't justification for what was happening now. And, um, and I think, you know, she came to kind of feel like, no, I don't deserve this. And no, I don't have to stay. But again, not staying didn't look like leaving permanently. It meant even just leaving the house for a few hours. So, you know, some of the safety strategies that we developed was that when she felt like things were going to escalate or when he was starting to become violent, she would run and go open all the doors and windows and go outside where the neighbors could see. And she did this because she felt it would deter him. And it did. And she also began to get in her car and spend hours away from the house. And at one point, um, I found a place for her to stay for a few weeks because things had gotten really bad. And she just needed some space to think and collect herself. Um, and that finally sent a message to him that she could actually leave. And I think it was then that it really sank in for her too, um, that she could choose. So um, when she came back, he didn't repeat the physical violence again. And, you know, emotional abuse and all of that, like, yes, that was definitely ongoing. Um, but to have this one type of harm reduced was a big deal. And I think because it was a family situation in which you have different kinds of cultural norms and clashes happening with, um, you know, with immigration, with language, with um, what it means to be loyal to your family, what it means to be blood. Um, you know, I think a lot of ways it, it felt like, like it was just going to be something that she had to endure. And um, another thing was that while the person being harmed was often really torn about their feelings, about her feelings towards the situation, um, you know, she really struggled with like, is it my fault? Um, she was still really accurate in how she assessed um, that person's violence, like that person's capacity for violence, as well as the limits to the violence that he would 
exercise in these situations because it's tr- most people have lines around the, their violence, um, around who they show it to, like what kind of levels they'll use, uh, what situations in which they will exert violence and which ones they won't, and so on and so forth. And survivors have a lot of insight into these lines because they need to know them to get through another day. And I really believe that no one has to do more anticipatory planning and de-escalation than people who are actively being abused and surviving violence. And it doesn't mean that they can tell the future, but I think it does mean that they're going to know better than you what might work and what might not. And so safety planning isn't just like, <clears throat> just like a static one-time thing. And um, it goes on and it requires trust and it requires some level of like flexibility and ability to like tend to your own pain and your own emotion that you accrue from the situation because a lot of times like it is going to be our closest people that turn to us which is why I think this work is so important and um, to be honest you know it's years have passed and I don't feel good about the situation I don't and I do wish that she would leave but that isn't my choice to make and the choice to make for me is how I myself am going to live with it And it's how I'm going to make peace, not with him, not with her, but how I'm going to make peace with myself for what I can control and what I cannot control. So I will end it there. Thank you so much, Hijin, for sharing, for being vulnerable, for putting it on the line. Um, Shira, do you have a a closing? And then we're going to go to questions. Okay. Thanks, Shira. So um, what I want to I want to do right here is that we do have a couple of questions that were sent already that we might respond to. I do want to just plug for those who might be interested um, that next Thursday, I'm facilitating as part of our Building Your Abolitionist Toolbox series, uh, a session uh, using a a resource I created many years ago go with uh, Caitlin Seidler called uh, Giving Name to the Nameless, which attempts to use poetry to engage people all of all kinds. But this was particularly girls that I was working with at the time um, to have conversations about interpersonal violence and to be able to share these stories with each other and find ways to connect with community. One of the ways that we were engaged in um, harm reduction work when I was working with a particular group of young Black and brown girls for many years back in the day uh, was to use these forms of poetry to open up windows and opportunities to talk about safety planning and other things like that. So particularly for those of you who are working in communities with young folks, if you're interested, please come and join us uh, virtually next Thursday. Um, In terms of some questions that I notice in the chat, um, I think I'm going to ask one of them here, uh, which was a question that was essentially about hearing from panelists about what they think is the balance between intervening by engaging in accountability measures versus investing too much time centering the abuser. So a question about like the right quote unquote mix between the centering of the abuser or doing accountability measures, or I'm not quite sure what the general gist of, you know, engaging in accountability measures usually means accountability for the person who caused harm. So I'm not, I'm not really sure, but if you all want to speak to that in general, maybe it's the general question of, it always comes up, you know, why are we spending so much time on the person who caused harm? And I honestly, 
I just want to say this because this is an editorial uh, comment. I actually don't think we spend a lot of time addressing the person who caused harm in our overall culture. We kind of like constantly avoid doing that work with that person. And usually many anti-violence organizations don't even have batter intervention, you know, like they don't have any programs whatsoever supposedly to address the person who caused harm. So I think writ large, that's not the case. It may be the case in abolitionist circles that that happens. And partly it's because people are trying to fucking figure out what to do to stop people from harming people, you know? So I just want to put that out there. If that, I don't know if that responds to in any way to the question, but I do think we have to be real about that. As I see Rachel has, uh, could respond here. So please go ahead, Rachel. Um, I also feel like inside this question is a thing like reveals a thing that I've noticed where like when people are spending, quote unquote, too much time investing too much time centering the abuser, um, what they're actually doing is coddling the abuser, you know, and I feel like there is people aren't practiced in bringing helping invite somebody into account like with real talk and sort of like honesty. And so you're doing a lot of hand wringing. You're doing a lot of like, oh, you poor person and hurt people, hurt people, that sort of thing. And that is actually quite time consuming. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what, what I think needs to happen is that people need to think, rethink their strategies around what, how they're engaging a harm doer. And if they're trying to like, help this person come into account for a really, really like set of terrible practices by, by like being permissive and coddling. And that's because we have a general discomfort, I think in, in imagining somebody that we care about is capable of doing something really terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and yeah, so like, I think that if you're, if you're worried about it, right. And also it takes a long time. It all, takes a long time. And that's why you can't do it by yourself. And you can't be that person spinning the plate of survivor support and spinning the plate of inviting this person to account and spinning the plate of crisis intervention, doing it all yourself. That's ridiculous. Of course, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to do any of those things. Well, Um, that's my two cents. I love it. Um, Anybody else want to jump in on this question? Please feel free. I want to jump in briefly just to say that I think there's a little bit of a, in, in TJ and community accountability work, if that's called for, and if that's something that folks want and need, that um, I don't, I, I think that that line gets shifted throughout the process and it gets shifted from process to process and it gets shifted from couple to couple or from people who are involved to people who are involved. I don't think that that's a, a hard line. Um, and I also want to just challenge the idea that people who cause harm don't deserve investment. That's kind of our whole thing. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of one of the main problems with the current setup in the domestic, the mainstream domestic violence movement is that so many are funded. So many of them have funding codicils where they can't actually work with people who cause harm. And so because they can't work with people who cause harm, so much harm cycles through 
And that is part of what we've been responding to in transformative justice and community accountability is creating opportunities to engage people who've caused harm. So I think, A, this depends on your personal mission. Um, There are some people who only work with people who cause harm and only work with people who would be considered abusers. It depends on the structure and style of the approach that you're choosing. It depends on the individuals involved. And it also depends on the length and time that the process unfolds over because it may change many different times. Um, In fact, I would say, and I don't know what some of you would say, but many of the processes that I've been a part of, the work with the person who caused harm or who would be considered the abuser is actually much, much longer because at some point the survivor often pulls away to do her own work and or their own work and doesn't necessarily need to be super connected to what could be a decade-long transformation process and reflection process for the person who's caused harm. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure about um I think it's important to kind of rethink some of these ideas as we um shift how we approach ending violence. Thanks, Shira. Hijin. Sorry, am I muted now? I think I am. Um, yeah, I think this question kind of comes up a lot. And I think to me, I kind of want to ask like what accountability means for that specific situation because I think the meaning of that can is not always agreed upon by an organization, by a community, or even between two individuals, right? And um, for me, I think about Mimi Kim's kind of staircase of accountability thing in her creative interventions toolkit, where I think the first level is stopping the violence. And if um, and I think in in some in some community accountability processes where different victim blaming factors come into play, like we've discussed this pan- in this panel, um, things can get muddled and um, and I think other people can be kind of rooted into um, into feeding into some of the isolation that the survivor feels. Um, and I think it's hard to have like a short conversation about it on like in this Q&A format. But I do wonder about um, like what the goals people set are and what work they're willing to put in for that. And when they do so, how are they putting mechanisms into place for the survivor to be their own person and to heal too? Because I noticed that um, when... I don't know when there is like some kind of um, public incident of of violence or something that becomes public, the survivor and the person who caused the harm kind of become linked in the public as like being like part of the same picture. And I think whether it is within like the criminal legal system or within the community, um, I think one of the things that really needs to happen is for these those people to become unlinked. And for the for people to help like interrupt the enmeshment and to understand the two people as two different people who have different needs, who have different wants. Um, so I think accountability can 
yeah, it just, I think it can just look a lot of different ways. But I think the first thing is, is, is the immediate violence being stopped? And um, are there mechanisms in place to help like mitigate some ongoing impacts that might be happening as well? Um, another thing I think about is um, a conversation I had with queer and trans activists in Korea who were part of, who are part of um, like a broader, one of the biggest queer and trans organizations in the country. And it's been kind of a hub for a lot of organizing and activism simply because it's the most visible one. And um, a few years ago, there were many, um, there are many instances of sexual assault that were brought to light that um, one of the like lead organizers of the organ of the group was, was doing. And, um, and I remember being really su surprised by what I saw just because I hadn't seen something like it happen in, in the U S just to my knowledge. Right. And what happened was that um, the organization put out a statement that wasn't just like, Oh, this person doesn't represent our values. Like, we don't endorse like this kind of behavior we didn't know and now they've been removed but i think personally and publicly the organizers and the organization um they all said actually this is totally our fault and what are the ways that we have looked away so many times and friends of that person were sharing reflections about how at moments they had wondered you know, if they should step in or if they should say something about the person in these spaces with younger folks, um, especially with alcohol. But um, but there were a lot of things about the moment where they were just kind of normalizing and then they re realized enabling. And I think the accountability that they took on was to look at themselves as an organization and as people who love that person and um, and to kind of restructure things because even though I think an organization can have like a policy that's like zero tolerance sexual assault like that doesn't actually mean anything you know so how do you actually operationalize that um but I think there's like different levels of, of accountability to do and something that I would love to see more of is more of that reflection on like how did this happen on and how did you know, how can we make it so that it's less likely to happen or that in the very likely case that it does happen, that there are actually pathways where people can raise what happened and receive care, receive support, receive safety planning and um, and have those be, you know, priorities. So I think I maybe got a little scattered. But. No, it's okay. Thank you, Hajin. We definitely got what you have to say, and it was really impactful and helpful, as always. Um, so I think we want to bring this to a close, and what I want to do is um, offer everybody a chance. If there's some li lingering thought that you have in, like, two minutes to come to some, you know, you want to leave people with a thought maybe about the toolkit or about some other thing that you were thinking about that you didn't get a chance to say. I'm going to give everybody a chance to do that. Um, and then we will say goodbye and make sure that our folks uh, who've been interpreting and captioning can get on with their evenings. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to start here with Rachel. Rachel, do you have anything last minute, one minute, little point? I just, I want people to practice, like use the toolkit and actually practice, talk to people with, 
about it. And don't be one of those people like we see this in just practice all the time where you go through all the training and then you still call people to like just do the thing that you actually know how to do. So so be in relationship and and try and use the toolkit. And thank you. Thank you all so much for your contributions. How about Anacelia? planning we we do all of this but ultimately we have to step back and we've got to look inward we've got to look in our organizations we got to look at what policies and procedures are in place that we are replicating the systems oppression and expectation how do we step back and really make those changes that we have to do at deaf hope we run on a collective leadership approach and we do that for a very specific reason because we want to actually abolish this hierarchical approach and these expectations that then trickle on to the people that we serve because it is about how we do our work. So thinking about looking inward, looking at your organizations, looking at the ways that you perpetuate systems-based approaches. And I think that's a really a good place to start. Thank you so much, Shira. Any thoughts? I just want to invite people who are oriented towards TJ and abolition to do whatever they can to think in a complicated way specifically about domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And I want to invite anyone who is working in the anti-violence field to begin to acknowledge the ways in which we have always used transformative justice and we have always used harm reduction to survive. And how can we begin to make those practices a more acceptable and celebrated and honored part of the work. And lastly, I want to just lift up all of us and all of you who are survivors who have stayed in it and who know that the best help comes from us and who also honor your pace and your need to take breaks and take care of yourself and honor your boundaries in this um, work. And I just want to say thank you so much for this toolkit because it's game-changing. And when I think about if I had had a toolkit like this when I was starting out, the difference it would have made for me. So um, thank you for this panel and um, for all of the labor that went into this kit. Hijin, you want to close us out? Your thoughts? Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Um, I just have appreciation for for all of you um, here today and my co-panelists and to Miriam. And I think the thing I want to close out with is an invitation for people to be curious and ask more questions about the things that survivors are saying that they want. Um, And instead of thinking like immediately that what the person wants is just crazy or not something that's doable, um, I would like people to ask more like why that person might want to take that measure or why that person, you know, with like from the lens of trying to have compassion and wanting to understand as opposed to asking why in an accusatory or, or judgmental fashion. Um, and it's, com- it's complicated. And I think in a lot of ways too, it's simple, like how we care for each other, right. And how we make how do we make people feel loved? How do we like to feel appreciated or loved or seen or cared for? Like, what do we look for when we're feeling upset or traumatized or like we're going through something really difficult, right? I think a lot of people, a lot of us like intuitively know what feels good in terms of support. 
And I think it would be helpful for all of us to kind of help integrate um, more compassion into the way that we orient ourselves towards um, towards survivors, towards domestic violence, and you know, towards all of this as a whole. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and I want to thank all of the panelists, um, Pigeon, Aracelia, Rachel, Shira, for your brilliance. I always learn something new when I'm in community with you. So thank you all. And Aracelia, I'm so glad to meet you for the first time. Um, I also want to thank our amazing interpreters, Christina and Amber, and our wonderful captioner for all your support in making this space uh, just a little bit more accessible. Thanks to Haymarket for doing these sessions consistently and allowing more and more people to engage with us virtually, which also brings an accessibility factor. And then I want to finally just say and shout out an opportunity for those of you who are currently facilitating community accountability processes, like really doing it in the community, struggling, trying to figure some stuff out. Um, contact Just Practice because we're going to be doing something cool in um, July, um, it's at 302 advanced level space for people. And um, yeah, get in touch. And if you're that person listening to this today and you're like stuck out there, I don't know where, and thinking I'm doing this work and I'm super alone, you don't have to be. And I think that's part of this is we can do more together than we can do individually always. And I'm lucky to have had a community of folks that I can count on and yell on the phone about and to, and that's so critical. So thank you all for spending time with us this evening. And we are out. We are done. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.